Please turn in your Bibles once again this evening to Romans 6. And I'll read the first 14 verses again this evening. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God and ask for his help in prayer as we come to the preaching of the word this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you in particular for this epistle of Paul to the Romans. Thank you for chapter 6. Teach us more from your word tonight as we look at a very brief portion of it, and write the things we see and hear on our hearts, and bring forth by the power of your spirit fruit in our lives to the glory of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we ask. Amen. Amen. So I ended in the middle of my sermon this morning. And um, I didn't have an introduction for this evening, but I had some conversations this morning after the sermon with some of the brethren. And there were some good observations and some good questions that were raised. So I'll just mention one or two of them. Uh, as my introduction. One brother raised the question about whether the change that God has worked in us 
includes the fact that not only has he changed our environment in a sense, he's taken us out of the realm of sin and death and brought us into the realm of righteousness and justification and life. That certainly is true. And not only that, he has changed our master. We're no longer under um, the dominion of sin, but we're under grace. We're not under law. We're under God's dominion. That's true. But doesn't the change that God has effected in our conversion also include his changing what we are? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Let's just look briefly at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul writes there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so to use our language I've been using, if he's converted, he's a Christian, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I've been using some of that language that everything is different now. Everything is new for the Christian. Not only things around him, his master, etc., the way he should live, but who and what he is in Christ. And so he is a new creation. Everything is new. And it might seem that that contradicted perhaps uh, one of the illustrations I used. Pastor Khan mentioned it a few moments ago, the wind-up toy. My point in that illustration was simply to emphasize the absolute necessity of God's present working in our lives and the fact that His working is at the bottom of all that we do. Salvation, this is the point I was making, is of the Lord from beginning to end and all throughout, including everything that we do in the Christian life. It's not just that He makes us a new creation and now in our own strength as new creatures, we can do this. That's not the Christian life. Whatever you may have been taught, it's not the teaching of the Bible. The point of Romans 6, however, is not that we are a new creation. It doesn't focus on regeneration per se, God's causing us to be born again. The point of Romans 6 is that God has transferred us from the one realm to the other and it's that he has broken the power of sin that used to reign over us. And he's done all that on the basis of Christ's work and our union with Jesus Christ. That we are a new creation is certainly part of what God has done. It is a big part of what God has changed about us. It's just not the focus here. But I love it when uh, people who are listening to the messages are thinking about such things as this and are wanting to figure out how all of the teaching of the Bible on our salvation fits together. I've just said a few words about it here this evening. That we are new creatures is definitely part of the reason that we can do God's will. And that's one of the things I'll be emphasizing tonight. But Paul's point in Romans 6 is that the reason we can do God's will is that God has broken the chains of sin that used to bind us as unbelievers. He says that in verse 7. Get the right page here. He says that in Romans 6, whoops, getting the right 
book of the Bible here. He says it in Romans 6, 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. He says it in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And I think it was the same brother. He brought up another subject. He asked about definitive sanctification compared to progressive sanctification. I actually had some statements about that in my notes in a previous message on Romans 6. I'll say something about it another time as we go on. And then he, I think it was the same brother, he brought up this, this point. He said, is it true to say, or something like that, he asked the question, that sanctification, in a sense, begins in the mind. And there definitely is a sense that that happens. Think of this point I made about the indicative. There are things that are true. We read about them in the Bible. We need to understand them. As Jesus said then, sanctify them, Father, by the truth. Your word is truth. We need to understand the truth. I hope that's one of the reasons uh, all of you come here on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. We want to hear more of the truth. We want to have it ingrained on our minds, our hearts, our souls, so that we can live in light of it. Sanctification does, in a sense, begin in the mind. Whenever I think of that reality, my great text for that is one that I'll come to in uh, some months. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, verse 2. That's where it begins, in a sense. Well, that's, those are some of the comments and I heard and questions that were asked and good thoughts to have when you're hearing sermons like this. But now I just want to remind you of what we saw this morning. We began to consider the practical practical application of this teaching of the first part of Romans 6 um, in our lives started out by focusing on verses 8 and 11. I said that we should be confident regarding our death to sin and our new life to God. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And if we have that strong confidence that we will live with him, it should make an impact on our lives, we should go around with that kind of confidence. There's, there's a truth of the Bible that we are nothing. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. We're sinners. And I don't like it when people change hymns to say, um, what is it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me and changed the wording to saved someone like me. We lose biblical truth when we do that kind of thing. And we think too highly of ourselves when we do that. That's a truth I don't ever want to forget, and I don't ever want the people who hear my preaching to forget. But that's not the whole truth about a Christian, that he's a wretch. Part of the truth is you're something new, and the dominion of sin has been broken, and you need to realize that, and live in the light of it. And that, that leads to the next point that I made. This was what we saw this morning. And the second practical application of this truth, and Pastor Smith confirmed to me that this is the first imperative in the book of 
of Romans. It was Pastor Donnelly, probably, that I heard that from. He had reminded me that it's in one of his books, that this is the first imperative in the book of Romans, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. In other words, focus on these truths of the first several verses of Romans, the first 10 verses. Think about it. Realize that it's true and then live in the light of it constantly. We must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's verse 11. Tonight we come to verse 12. Following from that, the very next thing Paul says, it's another imperative. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. So the imperative is that, don't let sin reign. My heading is this then, we must not let sin reign. Go back to that indicative imperative point that I made. The indicative here in Romans 6 up to this point is God has effected a change, a great change in your life. And I should conclude therefore as a Christian my life is very different now. That's the indicative, and that's what I, when I look at that truth, am to reckon. My life is different. It needs to be different. It needs to be seen to be different. It needs to be different outwardly, not just on the page of Romans chapter 6 in my Bible. It needs to be so in my life as I live it. That's the idea. That's the indicative. My life is different now. The imperative is this. God says then, in light of that truth, that I need to live differently. And the way he states it here is, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Your pre-Christian life was a life of sin reigning in my mortal body. And part of the reason for that is because I did, in fact, let sin reign in my mortal body. You might say, but oh, you poor man, you didn't know any better. Well, that's true. Whose fault was that? You might say, well, but you didn't have any strength to resist it and fight against it because you were a slave to sin and you were in bondage and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, whose fault was that? You read Romans 5, I can put some of the blame on my father Adam, but if I read the whole Bible, I put most of the blame squarely here on myself. So, but that's what I did. I did let sin reign, and now as a Christian, I am not to let sin reign. The Bible is telling us, you have been removed, if you're a Christian, from that realm of sin and condemnation and death, and you've been placed in the realm of righteousness and justification and life. That's your new realm. So, you're in that realm by God's grace. You've been put there when you were converted. Now live 
like you're in that realm. And here's the first way you do that. You don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Let's take that imperative and notice three things about it. Of course, the main thing is, my heading and what the text says, don't let sin reign. Don't let it be your master. Don't let it be the boss of your life like it always used to be in your pre-converted state. Now remember, it may seem like something that Paul shouldn't have to say, doesn't need to say, has no place for the Christian because he's already said you're dead to sin. And he says in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. He said in verse 7, he who has died has been freed from sin. Why should Paul say that? Well, remember one of the things we've seen and we'll see it over again in, in, in great detail and with great emphasis in chapter 7. And the rest of chapter 6 assumes this as well. But remember what I've said. The decisive battle has been won against sin for the Christian. That's what definitive sanctification means. But remember this, sin still has some life in the Christian. Still sin, sin still exists in every Christian in this life. And sin if you give it the opportunity, will reign over you on a practical level if it is allowed to do that. Do not try to prove that by any experiments. You do it enough without trying. Think of David. Man after God's own heart a true child of God. Think of all the wonderful things he wrote in the Psalms that he really believed and he really sought to live up to in his life and in his better days did. But think of what that godly man did. You know what he was doing in terms of Romans 6? Letting sin reign in his mortal body. You are not to allow that as a Christian. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Here Paul is basically making this point. He does it in different language. But he's making this point. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 7. Doing a similar thing, he starts out by saying some things that are true about you if you've become a Christian. Here's what's true about you. And then, in light of that, here's what you should do. Starts out in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, you hear the echo of Romans 6 there. If you were raised with Christ, you've been raised to newness of life. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Use your mind and set your mind on things that are above and seek those things. He says it positively here in Romans 6. In what we're looking at right now, he says it negatively. Do not let sin reign. And then verse 3, again, he's, he's making that same point of Romans 6. For you died, 
And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But we're not there yet. And therefore, what do we need to do now? Verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Don't live that way anymore, he's saying. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. People who still live that way because they're worldlings. And because of that kind of behavior, the wrath of God is coming upon them. In which, he says, you also once walked when you lived in them. It either means when you lived in those sins, like the Gentiles, like the unbelievers, or when you lived among them and lived just like them, the Gentiles. But you don't anymore. And so he goes on in verse 8. But now you must put off all these things. In other words, these things are all true about you. You're different. You're not what you once were. But now you've got to live that way. And like it says in Romans 6.11, you need to use your mind. Reckon these things to be true. And just like it says here, set your mind on things that are above but then also, you've got to put to death your members on the earth. That's Paul's language in Colossians 3. His language in Romans 6 is, um, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You are not to allow it. That's the idea. You are to take the posture in living your Christian life in relation to sin in your life, including sin in your own heart that continues to well up and wants to overtake you, you are to take the posture of a soldier who is defending a piece of ground or defending a city or whatever it might be. Back when I was preaching on the, um, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 over the summer, I, I, um, I use that analogy of the, sol the um, soldier, one of David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23, verses 11 and 12. That was, there was that man, Shammah, and he was defending this field of lentils, and he stood his ground. I can't remember how many men he killed in the process, but the point is, he wasn't going to let the Philistines, I think it was, take that field of lentils from the Israelites. He stood his ground. That's the posture we need to take. Or take the posture of an athlete coming up to a big game. And um, he says, when, when, he, when he's either being interviewed and said, are you going to win this game? This other team has really been playing great lately and they've, they've really thrashed some other teams in this. And he says, not in our house. In other words, the game is on our field. It's on our turf. It's not happening. That's the posture that you as a Christian should have toward the idea that sin should reign in your life. And so what well, you say, well, but it can't reign because I'm dead to sin or God has broken the Why does God say, don't let sin reign? Well, because one of the reasons it won't reign is because of what Christ has done on the cross and what he has done in you. And the other part of the reason is 
because of what he's going to continue to do in you, which includes your not letting sin reign. You take that posture of a soldier, of an athlete, of a police officer who says, on my shift, in my precinct or my part of the city I'm supposed to guard, crime is not going to happen. In other words, take ownership of your life and of yourself, if you will. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And that leads to the second thing we want to note, and that is the sphere or the vehicle of sin that Paul mentions here. Your mortal body, the body you're living in right now. It's a human body, but now remember, to be human is not to be sinful. God didn't make Adam that way. Jesus had a real human body, but it had no sin in it. So to be human is not to be sinful. But Paul talks about your mortal body. It's not only subject to death and decay. In our case, it's, it's a sinful body. Now, there is, there is no shortage of sins of the mind. So it's not as though Paul is saying all sin is in the body. That's what some people do with Romans 6. They say, you can see the seed of sin is in the body. That's why Paul says it this way. And then they come to um, passages like, First Thess I think it's 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which says, that you should be, um, that God will, will sanctify, I can't quote it exactly, but he will sanctify you body, soul, and spirit. And they say, see, you th see man is a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. And they say, but the sin resides in the body, and the soul is the ego. And then they say, but the spirit is not infiltrated with sin. Well, that's not the teaching of the, of the Bible. We're, we're told in, second, I think it's 2 Corinthians 7, 1, that we are to be sanctified body and spirit. Our spirit needs to be sanctified. Our mind needs to be sanctified. There's no shortage of sins of the spirit, the mind. Pride is that kind of a sin, etc. But the fact is, many sins are clearly and directly associated with our bodies. Some of the most evident ones. Some of the ugliest ones what what is the what are the sins in the new testament that are denominated uncleanness sexual sins the lust of the flesh sins are associated with the body many sins are connected to our mortal body when we have our heavenly bodies there will be no sin connected to those thanks be to god but the bodies we have now are our mortal bodies. So Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Our sinful bodies, brethren, routinely desire, and because they want to reign over us, they demand more than what God has prescribed for us. That's the idea. Because Sin, by definition, is going against God's law. So he says, do this, you don't do that, that's sin. He says, don't do this, you do it, that's sin. So our sinful bodies 
regularly are desiring and demanding more than what God says we should have. Whether it's food, whether it's drink, whether it's comfort, whether it's ease, whether it's sex, or many other things. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And then, the third thing I wanted to note about this imperative here is, the result that is to be avoided, and that is that you obey it in its lusts. Notice the whole statement of verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. You don't obey sin in its lusts. You don't obey your mortal body in its lusts. Paul is saying there's a close connection here between sin and our bodies. I just mentioned what that is. Starting in verse 14 and going through the rest of the chapter, and we're going to see this as we go through it, he repeatedly says that sin acts as our master. It's obviously the master of unbelievers. What Paul is saying is because it reigns in our body, it still can act as our master. And we are not to let it. You say, no, not my house. You be like Shammah. You protect your, uh, the field of lentils of your mortal body so that sin doesn't have mastery over it and over you. Here he represents our sinful body as a potential master of us. Think of a picture that we all experienced recently. Christmas Day, for many of us, you sat at the dining room table. In fact, it might have been repeated Thanksgiving and then again on Christmas Day. You're sitting at the dining room table. As a Christian, based on your knowledge of the Word of God and yourself and your present feelings, you know that you have reached the point that you should do this. Push yourself away from the table. The body says, don't you go anywhere. And that happens with eating, gluttony, the sin of gluttony. It happens with drinking, the sin of drunkenness. It happens with sexual lust and other bodily desires. And Paul is saying, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Now we'll get into more details about fighting against sin because like I say, in the last half of chapter 6, Paul stays on this imagery and this whole idea of sin and are not becoming slaves of sin again, but being slaves of righteousness and how we are to do that by presenting our members to God, our members to righteousness, not to sin. We'll get into all that. Let me just, in, in the remaining time today, let me just focus on a few assumptions that lie behind this teaching here. I want us to be able to put the teaching of the Bible together. So here we go. First of all, the first assumption is this. 
And it's covering some ground we, we did this morning, so I'll be brief. Although it's ultimately God's work that is putting sin to death. It's ultimately God's work. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Yet, and this point was made this morning, you must be involved. That's the assumption here. When we know that the salvation is all of God, but it says, in order to make sure this works out right, you reckon yourself to be dead. You do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You do not obey it in its lust. The imperatives are directed to you. They're not directed to God's Spirit in you. They're directed to you and to me. So we are responsible here. It's ultimately God's work, but you must be involved and your effort matters. We'll see that again in very clear teaching in the coming rest of the chapter of Romans 6. That's the first assumption. The second assumption is this. Although it is ultimately God's work, you are morally obligated to do what God calls you to do. We've seen that in previous messages already. I, I like to frequently emphasize that's the teaching of the whole Bible. There are so many Christians, maybe genuine Christians, certainly professing Christians, who, when they understand grace, they want to constantly de-emphasize the imperatives of the Bible, the commands of the Bible. One of their most common mantras is that if you do emphasize the commands of the Bible and the imperatives, you are a legalist. I could have used that sentence as a fill-in-the-blank, and you all would have been able to give me that L-word answer. That's what you are in this day and age, because we understand grace. And in many people's minds, grace means you don't have to work, you don't have to fight, you don't have to mortify your members that are in, on the earth. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. Although it's ultimately God's work, you are morally obligated. Don't let yourself fall to pray to that teaching that this equals legalism. It doesn't. Hyper-Calvinism, and I'm not going to give a lesson on it, but for those of you who understand what hyper-Calvinism is, it has to do with more than just theological issues like the preaching of the gospel whether we preach it to those who are not yet regenerated or if we don't know their elect, it has more to do with that and more to do with just the idea or the doctrine of common grace, whether there really is such a thing. Hyper-Calvinism has to do with those questions. But the heart of the error behind of, of hyper-Calvinism is the debate about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And the, the basic thing that hyper-Calvinism does is it de-emphasizes human responsibility to the point that it almost makes it into nothing. And it just emphasizes the sovereignty of God. And that's why there are so many people who are almost in chains as Christians because they don't think they can take the commands of the Bible seriously 
and just look at them and say, I need to do this because they think I have to wait for God to push me to do it. And that's not the theology of the Bible, brethren. Regarding gospel preaching, the sinner is responsible to repent and believe, regardless of what hyper-Calvinists say. And regarding the Christian life, the believer is responsible to mortify sin and to obey God's commandments. So that's the second assumption. Although it's ultimately God's work, you are morally obligated to put sin to death and to not let sin reign in your mortal body. And the third observation on this text is this, and that is you can do this. My, my point I just made was you must do this. Now I'm saying in addition to your needing to do this, that you're obligated to do it, you can do this. And I know that doesn't even sound Calvinistic at all to some people. Because, but remember, there's, there's more parts to the truth than just one element. I can't do it in myself. I can't do it in my own strength. I understand that. I want you to understand that. That's, that's why I'm preaching this, because I want you to know you can't do it, so you go to the right place to be able to do it. Like I think one of the pianist was playing before the, the service, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, just as I am, I come, O Lord, as a weak, beggarly, impotent person. I come to you. But there's a, a, there's a, a truth that's the other side of the coin expressed in a statement like Paul's in Philippians 4.13 that um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when you say I can, and when I say can, I can, you can, give me credit for meaning it the way Paul meant it. Anyway, you can. And, and let me give you three points here, three, three angles from which it's true. First of all, from the standpoint of our working in conjunction with God's working. It's something I said this morning. I just want to emphasize it again. God has decreed that we will, we will live righteous lives as Christians. We, we read it in Ephesians 2.10, I think, this morning. He has prepared good works in advance for us to do. So he's decreed. Even John Wesley, the Arminian, said in one of his hymns that we have in our book, he wills that I should wholly be who can withstand his will. The answer to his rhetorical question is nobody. If God wants me to be holy, I'm going to be holy. But the point is, he's enabled me to be holy. By making me a new creature, breaking the bond, bonds of sin in my life, and giving me the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and so on. Here's the point. I made it this morning. The way God works out His saving purposes 
includes his using your mind, your will, your effort. Right? So you can. You can, and you should look at it that way. From another standpoint, let's look at it this way. God has not laid upon you an obligation that you can't fulfill. He hasn't done that. Now, I know that some people, hyper-Calvinists, say that, well, there, you're, you're, you're right. And that's exactly the reason you shouldn't preach the gospel to the non-elect unless you have a reason to believe they're elect. I mean, it's a really stupid theology, hyper-Calvinism is. But the reason you shouldn't do that is because they can't. That's true, they can't. But that's not how God works. And that's not how God speaks. And since God doesn't speak that way, we shouldn't speak that way. We should just say, all right, I get that, but I just know this. The Bible says God commands all men everywhere to repent, whether they can or not. And in the same way, he commands us to put sin to death. And then from a third way to look at it. You might look at it from the standpoint of your experience and just your knowledge that sin is so powerful. It's more powerful than you are. I think of whenever I think of the power of sin in my life and praying that God will break the power of it. One of the texts I think of is Psalm 18. And I didn't look it up, but one of the uh, verses in that Psalm in the earlier part of it is, David says something like, save me from my enemies who are too powerful for me. That's the way I look at it. All my enemies are too powerful for me. They're not too powerful for God, but they are too powerful for me. Well, if you just focus on that aspect of truth, you're going to say, I, I can't do this. I can't. I can't. I can't keep sin from reigning in my mortal body. Poor um, you know, worm that I am, poor wretch that I am. I can't do it. All right, I'm just saying this. This is the teaching of the Bible. You can master yourself. Especially like it says here in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Oh, but I'm so weak. I'm so sinful. Let me remind you of something we saw some months ago. I was preaching, uh, teaching on um, lessons in the Proverbs in Sunday school classes. And one day I came to self-control. And in one of my lessons on self-control, I, I spoke about the reality of self-control. And I used this text from the Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 28. It says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. In your own power, you cannot have rule over your spirit. You can't. But in God's power, not only can he have rule over your spirit, you can. That's why God states it that way. You need to have rule over your own spirit. That's self-control. It's something necessary in the Christian life. If you don't have it, you're going to be like a city broken down without walls. Satan can come in and ruin and plunder at will in your life. If you don't get some control over yourself. It's, that's how Paul teaches it in 
in um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when he gives us the fruit of the Spirit, what's the last one of them? Self-control. You do it. It's on you. But it's a fruit of the Spirit. I think I quoted someone who said something like this, at no time is the Spirit um, more in control in your life than when you are controlling yourself. That's a biblical way to look at it. You can do that. You can control yourself. Your passions can be trained. Your lusts can be mortified. They can be subdued. Think of how Paul says that here in the next epistle, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 25 to 27. This is a text you ought to think of in this regard. He says there, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. In other words, he's, he moderate, he's moderate. Do all things in moderation. Now they do it, runners, wrestlers, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, maybe a gold medal, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. He's talking about the same body, our mortal body. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. How do you do that, Paul? Various ways. How do you do it on Thanksgiving or Christmas, Paul? Pushaways. That's what he's saying. So you can master yourself. In one of my other conversations at the door, one of the brethren brought up this point to me when he's talking about reckoning. He said, I have to reckon on the basis of what the Bible says is true. True about God and Christ. True about salvation. True about conversion. If I'm a Christian now, true about me. That's what, that what it has to be my truth. And I have to soak my mind with it and reckon that that is the truth and it's got to be my truth for every day. And I've got to stop living on the basis of the way I feel. That's right, because that's a lot of people's problem. I've got to stop that. And he said it this way. My feelings don't matter. My emotions don't matter. You know what he means by that is? The common thinking of the people of this world and all too many Christians that, well, emotions can't be controlled. Solomon couple few thousand years ago said they must be controlled or you will be like a city broken down without walls and this brother said he had to train himself to live that way and think that way but with God's help he did train himself so you can master yourself second you can master your lusts and that's an assumption Paul still had them. Read 1 Corinthians 9 at the end, which we just did. Read Romans 7, the last half, which we will read. But notice what he says in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now I think, I'm going to demonstrate this, I hope from the Scripture, that Paul's writing about himself 
as a Christian. But sin can be so powerful at times, he says, I'm carnal. I'm sold under sin. Almost like he's still a slave to sin. He's not. But the point is, sin is still powerful in Christians. It's still active. And you know what? Sin acts the same way in a Christian as it does in a non-Christian. It's just had the, the decisive break of the reign of sin. That's the difference. Or turn to a passage I think I quoted last week. Probably read it too. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. Where Peter brings out some of the same truths. He says in 1 Peter 2, 11, 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, that's what Christians are. You don't live in that realm anymore, but you're still in that world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He's not talking about other people's lusts. He's talking about the lusts which war against your soul, which are right in your soul. It's the enemy within. Same truth Paul's talking about. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And Peter kind of says it the same way. How do I do that? Peter, same thing. The push away. Abstain. Oh, you should have another helping of dessert. Now, I do. I do have extra helpings of desserts on those days. But, but I, try to, I try to gear myself up for them. Like not eating in the first half of the day. And maybe the first half of the next day. And, and putting myself on the scale to make sure I'm not letting myself get out of hand. That's how we should be living, brethren. You can master your lust. That's what Peter says. I'm begging you to do this. Do it. You can master, if you will, your members. Your members that are on the earth. I think Paul is talking about these things we can see. He's concerned about the way you use your arms and your hands. The way you use your eyeballs. The way you use your mouth, both, both as an instrument of speech and a vehicle of getting food into your stomach. He's talking about the stomach, which he says in Philippians 3, some false teachers have let their stomach become their gods. Don't do that. He's talking about these things. But he's also talking about the sins that go along with them. That's why he used that language in Colossians 3. Put to death your members that are on the earth. And then he doesn't say the right hand that you need to cut off or the right eye. He goes right to the sin that are found in the members, if you will, and that are committed with the members. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You can master your members, you can master your lust, you can master yourself. That's an assumption here, brethren. And as we go in to more details about how we need to do that on a daily basis, 
as we go into the later verses of Romans chapter 6, I want you to go into it with that conviction in your mind. Because if God has made you a Christian, then that's true of you. No less than it is of me, no less than it was of the Apostle Paul. And as I have already said, under this third observation from the text, uh, under, um, what did I call it, assumptions that we have in the text, you can do this. The fourth point under that is this. As I've already said, you must do it, but the fact is also, and this is the emphasis here, the fact is also that you will do it. You will do it. And that will, you shouldn't look at it as something that comes with great foreboding. Though, though you can look at it that way. In other words, you will do it. Or else. I mean, you could look at it that way. It's true. That's the way the Bible does come to us. You do these things because the judgment day is coming. You do these things because if you don't, you're going to be at the left hand on the day of judgment. But I think the great emphasis in this statement, sin shall not have dominion over you, is encouragement. It's encouragement. Like I said, I put it under the heading, you can do this. And that's the emphasis here. It's not just that you must, but that you will. And that's how you should be thinking, reading Romans chapter 6. Okay, so I've died to sin. And that's because of Christ's work. Huh, I've been baptized. That means I died to sin like Christ. And if I died to sin, Christ died in relation to sin. He doesn't have to de deal with it anymore. Doesn't have to fight against it. Doesn't have to shed blood to overcome it. He's done with that. Now he lives to God. I'm in him. I, I live to God. And that's the idea. So Paul comes and says, so sin shall not have dominion over you. You should take that as a great encouragement, especially if you've thought differently. Oh, I'm so sinful. I can't do that. Don't think that way, brethren. Think biblically. That's the idea. Reckon these things to be true. You will do that. It's a huge encouragement in the face of the worry that you have Oh, I could take this seriously. I could strive with all my might, but I could still fail in the end. No, nobody. This is Paul's point. Nobody has ever taken these things seriously, believed in Christ for the grace to do these things, striven with all his might, God helping him, and then failed in the end. Nobody ever has. And nobody ever will. And if you are a Christian, you will not. I'm not saying the fight is not going to be difficult. I'm not saying it won't be ugly at times. I'm not saying you might not have, that, that you'll never have David experiences or Peter experiences who denied his Lord, even though he was a believer. I'm not saying that. But I'm simply saying this. If you're a Christian... Though sin rears its ugly head often and ominously, and it seems like many days he's on top and he's about to get your second shoulder blade pinned to the mat, if you're a Christian, it's not going to happen. 
He's not going to get the fall. And you need to go back to Romans 6 and drench yourself in that truth and reckon it to be true and then just get up and fight. And then somebody reminded me of this text at the door and what he said. And I said, you know, whenever I think about that, I think about this text. I forgot to look it up, but I think it is... What's that passage where... um, I know there's people out there that can help me. Where Paul, where uh, not Paul, but the prophet talks about, um, don't rejoice over me, my enemy. Micah 7. So I was, I was looking in the right place. Thank you. Okay, so Micah 7. Ah, earlier in the chapter than where I was looking. Micah 7, verse 8. And I said, I like to think about this text when I'm having days when the lust of the flesh really seem to be rising up when I'm feeling temptations and pressures to sin that I thought were so many years behind me because I've come so far in my walk with God and in grace. In other words, I'm thinking like Peter. Oh, I would never do that, Lord. And then God, in His mercy toward me, lets me see the power of indwelling sin. We sing about that in one of our hymns. I think it's 731. And then I often come to this passage. And I think of my sin, my enemy. I think of the powers of darkness. And I read this text. I read it out loud. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. Why? Because sin will not have the dominion. I will arise when I sit in darkness. The Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? In other words, you're living just like any unconverted person. No, he says, my eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. Why will that happen, brethren? Because Christ has won the victory. You have won it in him. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are a new creation. You're no longer in that realm of sin and condemnation and death. You're God's child. The devil is not your father anymore. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your word and write it on our hearts and help us to live it out. Father, we are just a huge mass of weakness in ourselves. But as Christians, we're not just in ourselves. We are in Christ. Help us to understand more and more of all that that means for us and the great impact it should have on our lives. Help us to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, may we not let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we should obey it 
and its lusts. But may you reign in us through Jesus Christ, your Son, by the mighty working of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.